0: Good morning. My name is Deb. I am a real alcoholic. It is always an honor and a privilege for me to be asked to do anything in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just generally don't prefer that meetings are of this size. (laughs) I was relatively certain last night sitting in this packed house listening to Lorna share a story that just absolutely moved me and made me laugh from my belly and made me cry a little bit that half of you would still be in bed this morning. I was banking on that. Um, Anyway, when when Hugh called me, who's with this committee, and, and he asked me to come and share my story at this conference, it was a long time ago. And I said, oh, really? You want me to talk? I've never talked at a conference. And he said, we know that. But we'd like you to come. And I said, well, wow, okay. And that was a long time ago. And then, you know, all of a sudden it became 2003. And then I got an email from Hugh that said, are you still coming? And I thought, wow, that's coming up really fast. And I realized that I was actually going to, you know, have to, have to do this deal. And um, so I'm am, I am not, not ashamed to say out loud, I'm terrified this morning. <laughs>
1: um,
0: sometimes I think that this is all about me because I'm still a self-centered alcoholic. And I am so grateful that the three women who read for us this morning are here because they remind me that it has nothing to do with me. Those three women are three women who allowed me to sponsor them when I lived in Atlanta. And I spent, you know, a year and a half bonding with them and, and sharing my experience, strength, and hope and making them do their four steps and making them cross people off of their men's list and making them do all of these things that they didn't want to do because I was made to do those things when I came here. And I, was, and I was meant to, to do them, and I was made to do them in a very specific way, which I, you know, then passed on to them. And they're all still sober, and they all came down here. You know, I mean, Katie just flew in this morning so that they could be here to support me, and it has nothing to do with me. Thanks, guys. All right, my sobriety date is March 15th, 1987, and if you guys are like me, I like to sit out there and do the math and figure out how old all of you are, so I'm just going to get that out of the way. (laughs) I was born in 1971, so for those of you who are quick, that means I got sober when I was 15 years old. I'm currently 32. (laughs) And I put up with a lot of old timers telling me things like, you know, I spilt more Thai in my beer than you drank. And I thought if you hadn't missed your mouse so many times, maybe you'd gotten here sooner. And, you know, and the reality of it is I just wimped out (laughs) what you people did for 30 years. God love you.
1: I couldn't hang.
0: I absolutely couldn't hang. I got sick really, really fast. And instead of dying a terrible alcoholic death at an incredibly young age, God gave me the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's why I'm standing here today. Um, I'm a blue-collar kid from the Midwest. I was born and raised in in a very small town in Ohio that is very close to Akron, Ohio, which is where the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was founded. When Bill W went and sat down and and, and got the opportunity to chat with Dr. Bob, and they decided they'd try to do this thing called not drinking and um, and in that small town, there were a lot of people whose families came from West Virginia, so I'm truly one generation out of the hills hillbilly and um, and I, you know I used to not say that out loud, so I didn't want you to know that but that's <laughs> but that 's my truth and um and, you know, and I am a blue-collar kid. I mean, my, my father was a member of a union and he was a tradesman and he, and he worked on the floor of a factory for 30 years. And so did all of his brothers and sisters and so did everybody else's parents that I knew. And it was just a small industrial working-class town and that's where I was born and raised. And what they did was they worked really hard and they drank really hard and that's just the way it went. You know, I did not know. I had absolutely no idea... That there, are, that there are people in this world who come home from work, have a drink to shake off their day, and that's it. They don't drink a whole bottle, and they don't drink an entire 12-pack. They, you know, they just really have a drink. And some people drink socially. Like they only drink when they have company over or when they go out to dinner. No clue. The kind of drinking that I saw around me was very simple. My father would come home from the factory, he'd have a 12 pack under his arm, he would drink all of that by about 8.30 and then we would, we would fight my sister and I between us as to who would get to get in the car with him to go down to the drive through to get the other six pack that we knew he was gonna drink before he went to bed. That's the kind of drinking I grew up with and the only thing that I was ever told about alcohol when I would inquire as a very small child is, is that that was an adult drink and you're not allowed to have any. Well, I've been a little precocious from the very start, and so that was not an appropriate answer to give me. When I was nine years old, I decided that I was going to try this stuff and figure out what was so magical about it because everything in my house seemed to kind of revolve around it. And so I was spending the night with a friend of mine. Her parents had a bar in their basement, and we went downstairs, and out of pure curiosity... That was the reason I took my first drink, pure curiosity. I went down there, I poured a little bit of of something out of one of those bottles on the bar, and I made awful faces, and I had to force it down because that was nasty stuff. And as soon as it hit my stomach, about three minutes later, all of a sudden I felt very, very different. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life that I could remember, I wasn't scared anymore. And in my house was a little scary to grow up in. You know, my father has the disease of alcoholism that is currently still untreated, and my mother has the disease of codependency, which is currently still untreated. And it was, and it was, it was, a, it was a kind of a rough spot to be in. And I was scared of people, places, and things. I was scared of looks. I was scared of size. I was scared of everything that made noise or moved around me. But you wouldn't have known that because I swallowed hard every day and I went out there and I looked okay. And when I was nine years old and I put a little bit of booze in my system, I was not scared anymore and it felt so good. I I felt free for the very first time. And then I had another drink because that wasn't good enough. And then I had another drink because that wasn't good enough. And that was the night of first for me. It was my first drink, my first drunk, my first blackout. The next day was my first hangover. I mean, I hit the ground running, absolutely hit the ground running. And, um, and I remember very clearly the next day feeling as bad as I felt, thinking back to the way I felt after that first drink hit my stomach and it kind of exploded and it made me feel okay. That was the feeling that I remembered later in that afternoon and I remember making the conscious decision that I was going to drink alcohol as often as I could. Now my body wasn't craving alcohol, I wasn't instantly addicted, but I loved the feeling of relief that I got when alcohol was in my system and I made a decision to seek it because I wanted to feel like that rather than the way I felt, period. And that is how I got the disease of alcoholism. I drank enough long enough to where my body became addicted to it. And when I was 15 years old, the lining of my stomach was pretty much gone. I didn't know how to tell the truth. I couldn't walk up the street without stopping at that house to see those people who kept that bottle full for me. And I had to do something different. My, you know, my drinking progressed very, very quickly. Obviously, I was sober at 15 years old, so another quick calculation, I drank for about six years. And I can honestly tell you that for the six months prior to me going into treatment, well, for the year prior to me going into treatment, which happened in 1986, that I drank every single day. I would do things like, I don't know how I was able to do this, but I was able to actually save a couple of drinks or a couple of beers, depending on what I had, and stash them in the bushes on my route that I walked to school so that I could have a couple of drinks in me before I got to school so that I could get the shakes off and I could make it through my day. And that's just the way my drinking went. You know, and there, I don't have any wonderful, you know, creative, funny stories that will make you all laugh because my drinking was really pretty tragic. You know, there just just wasn't a whole lot good about it other than it consistently changed the way I felt until the last six months of my drinking. The last six months of my drinking, alcohol quit working. What it did for me was it still continued to take away the fear that I felt, but what it left me with was the anger and the rage that I had. So no longer, I was no longer fearful. I was just really, really angry. And I looked angry and I acted angry. And I would do things like we would be hanging out in a large group of people and I would be drinking my bottle and not sharing with anyone, which is how I did it. And I would say, did you see that guy look at you? And he would say, well, what what do you mean? He looked at you. Are you going to let him do that? And I would appeal to your egos, and all of a sudden it was on, and I got to stand back, and I got to watch the chaos erupt around me. And I got to take two steps back and watch you guys go at it, because I know some of you, and I know that you guys like to fight when you drink. And I hung out with you when I was drinking. Now, none of you knew how old I was. That's not true. Most of you didn't know how old I was. But some of you who drank with me did know how old I was. And so that just goes to speak to the, you know, level of morals and standards those people had who I hung out with when I drank. You know, it it takes a certain moral fiber to think that it's okay to buy a 14-year-old a bottle of vodka every single day. And so I hung out with people that I scared me and I went to places that I would never choose to go today. And I would walk in that place late at night after I'd sneak out of the house and I would sit with my back to the wall and I, would, and I would crank open that bottle and it was usually vodka. And I would just sit there and I would drink straight out of the neck of that bottle and it would take half the bottle to take away the fear and it would take the other half of a bottle to take me into oblivion and I would crawl home about six hours later just in time to take a shower and act like I was just waking up. And I did that night after night after night. And the things that happened to me while I was drinking, I'm not gonna go into, because it's none of your business. You know, but if any of you are, are young female alcoholics who are trying to get sober and can't live with the shame of what happened to you, please come and talk to me. Because we have stories in common. There are things that happen to us out there that are very, very painful. And that if we don't deal with them, they won't allow us to have long-term sobriety. It just uh, it just won't happen. In October of 1986, I'm sorry, November of 1986, right before Thanksgiving, uh, my parents had gotten divorced um, due to my father's alcoholism. My um, my mother would have stayed there until the day she died, and my sister and I are like, you know, hey, Ma, can you, can you get us out of here? okay, he's you know he's a little rough to live with, and we're not allowed to leave. My sister had tried, she ran away several times, and they kept catching her and bringing her home and um And my sister used also she and i she she my sister used drugs, and I drank that way, there was not a conflict of interest.
1: <laughs>
0: Very important to keep those things separate because she didn't get into my stash, I didn't get into her stash. We were able to use together, and not you know, and it, it worked out just fine. And, um, and, and so, we, you know, we were doing that deal, and, um, and we asked my mom to leave my dad and to take us to a safer place. And I was 12 years old when we, when we asked her to do that, and my sister was 14, and so she did. And, um, and it was easier to get over on one parent than it was on two. And, you know, I didn't know that when I asked her to leave. When I was 12, it was just kind of one of those really pleasant byproducts, I thought. And... Um, and so my mom was working, you know, two jobs trying to feed us and keep a roof over our head, and we were, we were rolling pennies to take to the grocery store. And, um, and we weren't keeping our head above water, and we knew that, and everybody was struggling, and I was drinking, and, and, um, and, and things were real crazy. And in my sophomore year of high school, in November, um, I had played volleyball games that I didn't remember. Um, and one of those volleyball games had a, had a scout there from Ohio State because everybody was praying that I would grow one more inch. Because, it, you know, they, they like to recruit girls who are 5'10 to play college ball. I was only, I landed at 5'9. And um, and I had a real mean serve, and I was able to do some things at the net that other girls weren't able to do. And, and I don't remember playing the game. Because I had gone drinking right after school. Because I had an hour to kill, and the shakes were coming on me. And so I went and I drank off the shakes. And... Um, and I played that game, and they did not know that I was that I was incredibly drunk, because I was just functioning. I was just doing the deal. And um, my mom went out of town, and my sister and I decided that we were going to have a little party, and we were going to invite all those people who scared me over to our house, which was <laughs> which was you know banner decision on our part. And um, and so you know they come rolling into our house and I said you know the only deal is that when you get here you better have my bottle and they said you know don't worry about that and they came rolling in and they and they didn't bring me vodka they brought me Jack Daniels which I never drank and um, now I know why and um, and you know and I, I I sat down with my back to the wall in my own home because that's the only way that I was comfortable because I knew I knew the things that were about to happen and I wanted to at least see it coming and I drank that bottle and I got incredibly drunk and I went into a drunken stupor and I didn't move for about nine hours. And my mom came home early at one o'clock in the morning and she walked in that house and there were people passed out and there was stuff all over the place and her baby, that would be me, I was sitting in the same position I'd been sitting in for nine hours and, and my legs and my arms had not been able, to, I, I, I couldn't move, you know, couldn't walk, couldn't do anything. I was sitting there and all my bodily fluids looking great and um, and she was absolutely horrified, reasonably so and uh, the next couple days are a blur I know that the police were called and I was in all kinds of trouble and it was just you know, I, it kind of came crashing down around me and what I can tell you is that it, it, at this moment in my life, you now know what my alcoholism looked like at the time you know what I looked like after school and on weekends and in the middle of the night. What I can tell you is that at school, I had a 3.9 grade point average. I was playing varsity sports. I was being scouted for volleyball. I was class president. And I was doing everything I could to keep it together on the outside because I knew if that didn't work, people would wonder why. And that is the only reason I overachieved was to protect my drinking and those two worlds came crashing down just because we, just because we had a few people over. I didn't, what, I didn't understand what the big deal was. And I figured, and I had been educated in school enough to know that if you're an alcoholic, you get to go away for treatment. And I figured getting out of Dodge at this point was a really good idea. It was a really good idea because people were asking me really difficult questions and they were starting to kind of wiggle their way down and eventually, very, very quickly, they were going to start questioning my drinking and I didn't want to have to explain that. And so I went to treatment and I spent 40 days in an inpatient treatment facility in downtown Cleveland, Ohio on 150th in the middle of Gang Central. And I was in that facility and I did everything I could to not learn a thing. I was only there to get out of Dodge long enough so that people wouldn't be mad at me when I went home. Okay, that was my goal. And three days before I went to treatment, I went to treatment the Saturday after Thanksgiving in 1986, on Thanksgiving night, I called those people, those people that I used to spend all my time with drinking, and I told them, I said, okay, here, this is the deal based on that little party we had a couple of weeks ago, I got to go to treatment. And I'd rather not do that because someone along the way told me that if I went to treatment, that they weren't going to let me drink there. (laughs) And that I wasn't going to be allowed to get out of there at night to go find something to drink. And the whole thought of not having anything to drink on a daily basis was something that just didn't register as an option. I had lost my choice in drink. My body had become addicted to the substance of alcohol and I needed to have a certain amount on a daily basis. That was my truth. And I understood that. And not drinking while I was in treatment, just, it just just wasn't working for me. So I called these people who scared me and I told them, I said, okay, here's the deal. You know, you guys know that I have to drink a lot. But my problem is that I pass out. I was a big pass out drinker, not a puker, but I was I was one of those that would pass out in really inappropriate places and you'd have to, you know, drag me around. And um and I said, you know, the, the deal is this, I would rather die than go without drinking alcohol. And they understood that. They were like, "Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, how can we help?" And I said, you know, I can drink a bottle but then I pass out. What I'd like to do is, is there some kind of mixture of something you guys can put together for me, because they were also my sister's drug dealers.
1: <laughs> is there
0: some kind of mixture of something you guys can put together so that it would kind of counteract the effects of alcohol and keep me from passing out so that I can drink more and I can just not wake up? And they said, yeah, we think we can do something more, yeah. And so they put together a little mixture of this and a little mixture of that, and I had a, you know, a handful of you know, colored things, and they said, you know, take the white ones and the pink ones and the yellow ones and, you know, keep it all spaced out this way, and it should, you know, should even you out, and you'll be able to drink more. And it was just this, you know, I look back on that, and I go, wow, 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 I don't know how they ever thought that was okay, but those are the people I spent my time with, and... um. And so on Thanksgiving night, you know, they they bought me the bottle and they gave me my handful and they gave me my instructions. And being the alcoholic, I I couldn't keep straight what they said, so I just kind of took it all and drank it down. And I came to two days later in Glen Bay Hospital in downtown Cleveland. And um, and while in my blackout, I had packed for treatment, went to treatment, filled out you know a drug use inventory and all that, you know, the alcohol use inventory that they make you fill out when you go to treatment. And I had been completely 100% honest on it. And that had not been my original intention. (laughs) There was no way these people were getting the truth out of me. Because I knew there was something wrong with my drinking. I was really clear there was something wrong with my drinking. I was not going to say that out loud. But, you know, I did it all in a blackout. And so they had my whole picture right there. Big, bright colors. And I thought, oh, here we go. And, like I said, I spent 40 days in that treatment center. My sister, because I got honest about her use while in my blackout as well.
1: <laughs>
0: my sister came in 10 days later.
1: And they called, you know,
0: over the loudspeaker, they were like, code blue, code blue. And I was like, what's a code blue? So the counselors are running down the hall, folding up their sleeves, taking off their ties. I'm like, what's that? And they're like, your sister's here. <laughs> And she hit that treatment unit, and the first time I saw her, I was like, hey. And she's like, don't go to sleep.
1: I'm like, i
0: got good to go. Yes, you know, so I, I didn't sleep much during the last 30 days of my treatment, and, um, and she didn't forgive me either for um, you know, basically turning her in and getting her into, you know, put in the slammer. And, um, and, but we made a pact the day that I was getting out. I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go home and drink. And she said, you wait on me. You're the reason that I'm in here. I'm going to be in here 10 more days. You wait on me. And I said, all right. And so, you know, I went home and I got my bottles and I got her, her stuff, all the stuff that she used to do, and I, and I had it ready for the relapse. And um, and she got out of treatment and she came home and I was like, okay, got it all. You know, here's your stash, here's my, when do you want to do it? And she said, well, you know, I was kind of thinking that we might want to try to stay sober.
1: <laughs> what the? You know, that just wasn't an option.
0: And, and she's like, N- you know, I, I'm really thinking that, you know, maybe I am an addict and maybe, you know, and you're definitely an alcoholic, so maybe we should try to stay sober. And I thought, no, nah, this isn't the plan. You know, I had been doing nothing productive but waiting on her to get out of treatment. And um, And so I had to wait, I had to wait. We got out of treatment. I got out of treatment January 10th and I was not able to drink again with my sister's blessing until March 14th. Two months, two, you know, over two months I had to wait on this, on this girl. And I worked on her from the outside and her disease worked on her from the inside and she and I both used again on March 14th of 1987 and one of the things that happened prior to my using is that you know she she insisted that we go to meetings of alcoholics anonymous so you know doing doing work shooting my angle um, you know we'd get there late we'd sit in the back we'd write notes we'd try to get dates we would um, we would just you know we were general disruptions and um, and the old timers This was in the Akron area where AA was founded. The old timers, they were a little upset with us. And, um, And one of the old timers read out loud to me from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're not sure that you can control your drinking, step to the nearest bar room and give it a whirl. He said, and if it doesn't work, then you are an alcoholic and you need to come back and you need to behave. And if it does work, I never want to see you again.
1: <laughs>
0: and at this point, I was absolutely certain because I, I, during those meetings, I heard nothing that you people said. Nothing. Okay, I was completely in my own head. I was having full conversations. I was writing notes. I was getting dates. I was doing that deal. And I heard nothing that you people said. You know, I thought, you know, something would slip in by osmosis. It doesn't work that way. And so, you know, I sat there and I thought, okay, step down to the nearest bar room. And I'm like, you know, but I, you know, at this point I'm, I'm 15 and um, I can't go to the nearest bar room. You know, so I had to, you know, I had to call those people that scared me, which I did. And, um, and you know, we got a little seed money from the old timers and Alcoholics Anonymous. And off we roared. And I, and I had this conversation with my sister and I remember just as plain as if it happened yesterday. And I said, you know, the deal is, if it doesn't work, we're supposed to go back to a meeting, but we'll have to behave. And if it does work, then they never want us to come back again. And she said, well, okay. And so we went out and I had my warm, safe, fuzzy feeling formula which was three shots and two beers. To me, that was moderate drinking. Okay? And it was moderate drinking compared to a bottle of vodka a day. So I had my three shots and my two beers, and I had those, and and, and as soon as they hit, I got that, you know, that wow, wow feeling again, and it wasn't quite as good as the first time, but it was, you know, I hadn't had it in a while. And, um, and I, and I got my warm, safe, fuzzy feeling, and I was kind of sitting there, a kind of a glow, you know, had a little bit of a buzz going, and my stomach was on fire, and it was kind of burning all the way down, and I thought, yeah, I love this. And then I thought, I wonder what one more shot would do. And then maybe another beer, because that shot's going to burn. And then before I knew it, before I knew it, you know, I was passed out in a mud puddle, which was typical for me. Because I had, just, I, I had just kept drinking and drinking and drinking until I went into a blackout and then went into oblivion and then passed out on the street. And the next morning, when I came to, my sister wasn't there. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know where she ended up. Um, she will have an amazing story if she ever gets back in these rooms. Um, huh, but that's her story. And um, and when I came to the next morning, I thought, if it doesn't work, you are to come back in here and be ready to behave. And I walked back into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that night, and I sat very quietly in the middle. I was there on time, you know, beat the bell. And and I sat there very quietly in the middle, and I listened for the first time to, to the things that you people had to say. And I thought, well, I, I, hmm, I might be able to do this. And I listened a lot to what you people had to say about the first step, about the part of being powerless over alcohol and that your lives were unmanageable. And there was one woman in the room who said very clearly, she said, I know, I know that the first step is true for me in my life because when I put alcohol in my system, I cannot reasonably predict when or if I will quit drinking And I know that my life is unmanageable because I can also not reasonably predict what will happen when I am under the influence or even when I am sober. And I thought, wow, got it. Because I had never tried to control my drinking until that night. I had never tried to control my drinking until that night. I did not know that there were people who socially drank. I didn't know that there were people who had a couple and stopped. I never tried to do that. And so when I went out on that little experiment, I heard some of you gasp when I told you that some old timers pitched in seed money, okay? But that was an incredibly necessary, necessary drinking excursion for me to go on because I needed to know that I could not control my consumption of alcohol once I began to consume it that is absolutely cornerstone to to my standing here today and being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to have a desire to stop drinking. And at that point, before my relapse, I did not have a desire to stop drinking. The day I walked back in after that night, on March 15th of 1987, I had a desire to stop drinking because I didn't want to do it like that anymore. You know, that period of time from Thanksgiving until my relapse, I hadn't seen those people that scared me. I hadn't sat with my back up against a wall so that I could see it coming. And the night that I drank, I did it with my back against the wall, sitting in the corner so that I could see it coming. And I didn't want to have to do that anymore. I didn't want to have to wake up the next morning and try to sort out what happened and to who and when. I didn't want to have to do that deal, and the shame was so incredibly thick for me that I knew if I continued to do this much longer, it would be too much for me to get over, and I just kind of intuitively knew that. And so when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I realized that when I put alcohol in my system, I could not reasonably predict when or if I would stop drinking and that my life was unmanageable because I also could not reasonably predict what was going to happen, whether I was under the influence or sober, then I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, my life had become unmanageable, period. And I needed to know that. And for all of you sitting in this room who know that, thank you for saying that out loud for me because I needed to hear you say it. And I need to hear you say it every time there's a first step meeting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't matter how long I'm sober. You know, there was one week in my home group I went to, I belong to the Bay Street group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Beaufort, South Carolina. And I go there at noon. And there was one week where I was blessed with the ability to go to that noon meeting every day. And every day we had somebody new in that room and we did the first step meeting every day for five days in a row and some of the old timers were starting to complain by Wednesday. Well we'd like to talk about something else. And I was like, you know what, I don't I don't want to talk about anything else. This is good to go. Because this is this is the one thing that I gotta get. This is it. As long as I got this part then working on my spiritual condition, I have the option to do that. If I'm drunk, I no longer have that option. You know, as long as I got this first step part, then I have the option to fix the relationship with myself and my fellows and my God. I I don't have the option to do that if I'm drinking. And so, you know what, every time we bring up the first step at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm like, bring it on. Because I have a desire to not drink today. And it starts there. When I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous after that relapse, I got real, real busy. And I got real, real busy because for some reason everybody kind of recognized that um, something was a little different about me this time. And, um, and I was made to sit in the front and I was made to get there early and I was given responsibilities. I was, you know, I had to empty the ashtrays. And, uh, and I started smoking when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous because you all smoked and I was just going to do all this by modeling.
1: <laughs>
0: so I started smoking and I learned how to drink coffee. That was some nasty tasting stuff when you start. So I was smoking cigarettes and I was drinking coffee and I was getting to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous early and they, there had been some kind of meeting of old timers at some point during that, that little stint where I was being a little snot before my relapse. And they had decided that if, that if I had ever, you know, graced the, the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous again, um, if God ever, you know, gave me back to them, which they, I think that they were really hoping that that wouldn't happen.
1: <laughs>
0: that there was, you know, they, they had a little program put together. You know, can we make her do the things that we make each other do? I, you know, I, they just didn't know. They and I didn't know what they were supposed to do with me, but, you know, by God, I wanted what they had. And, and, and I'll tell you what I saw that, that you guys had that I wanted. You guys hung out with each other. You hung out with each other. You came, to, you came to meetings in groups. Every time a car pulled in, not one person got out of that car, but three people got out of the car. And you were smoking cigarettes and laughing. <laughs> then you go in, you pour a cup of coffee, and you kept laughing. And then this group would mingle with that group. And everybody knew everybody's names. And there was a lot of hugging. There was a lot of back slapping. And when people started to cry, everybody would be like, you know what? You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And when people would lash out in anger, people would hug them and say, you're going to be okay. And when people were happy, they'd be like, you're going to be okay. You know, there was just just this huge sense in this room that everybody's going to be okay. And I never had that in my life. I never, ever thought that anything was going to be okay. I certainly didn't think I would because I knew, I knew that there was something incredibly wrong with me. I had this hole inside me that the wind would whistle through and I tried to put everything in it that I could and nothing fit, nothing fit. Nothing was big enough. But for some reason I thought that maybe you people knew what my hole looked like and what size it was and that maybe you had something that would fill it up and I had no idea what that could possibly be. But I wanted to be one of those three people getting out of that car, smoking cigarettes, laughing. And I wanted to be one of those people that you guys would pat on the back and say, you're going to be okay. I wanted to be one of those people that, you know, if I ever got to the point to where I could shed a tear, that you would hug me. Because I no longer scared you, and you no longer wanted me to just go away. <laughs> because there are a lot of you who just want me to go away, and I don't blame you. Uh, and so you guys had what I wanted, and I had no idea that what I wanted was God. I did not know that what I wanted or what I needed was God. I did not know that I was beginning a spiritual journey because, once again, I didn't listen to you. And I'm sure people said that. I just never heard it. It was all about alcohol to me before my relapse. And if... And if I would have heard that it was all about God and if I would have heard you guys you know, saying anything that sounded remotely like religion or any of that stuff, I would have you know, run screaming from the rooms possibly. But when I came back in and I had a desire to stop drinking, I also had the desire to get what you had and I didn't know how you got it. But by God, I was willing to do what you asked me to do. I was willing for the first time in my life To say, yes, ma'am, and how do I do that? (laughs) Wow. That was a wow. Because you know what? I wasn't born that way. I was not born that way. I was born terrified and angry. I was born terrified and angry. And when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was still terrified and angry. And that's what I brought to you. (laughs) I wanted what you have. You did not want what I had. You didn't want it because you all knew what it felt like because you had been there before. You know, I thought I was bringing something new to you, and you guys would just kind of smile and go, you're going to be okay. And there was, I told you that there was a meeting of old timers at some point, and they had all decided, you know, who was going to take care of me and what all was going to happen. And uh, and I obviously I didn't have a driver's license, didn't have a car, didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, every night at about 7 o'clock, there would be an old timer sitting in a really old, beat-up car in, in Sitting in my driveway playing country and western music, waiting for me to come and get in the car. Smoking cigarettes, drinking a cup of coffee with some other old guy in the back seat. You know, and I would I would stand there on my front porch and I would think I am not going to a meeting today. I don't have to go to a meeting every day. I haven't drank for three weeks. I don't know what they want out of me. You know, why do I have to go to a meeting today? And I would stand on the porch and I would just stare at them and they would just sit there and they would smoke cigarettes and they'd laugh and they'd be telling jokes back and forth. And before you knew it, I wanted to know what the, the punchline was. And so I'd get in that car and we'd drive, you know, half hour, 45 minutes to a meeting and, and, you know, and they would tell jokes and they'd laugh and then they would talk about spiritual matters and they would, you know, start ribbing at each other about what step they were on or what step they ought to be on or what step that Joe ought to be on and who was going to tell him that he needed to be on that step. <laughs> And they would have all of these amazing conversations about all this stuff, and they'd take each other's inventory and share it, and it was just—it was just absolutely the perfect way for me to get sober, you know. And so, you know, and there was never a point in time, thank God, that I looked around and said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm hanging out with 65-year-old men who you know smoke cigarettes, drink coffee, and have a good time, and I am enjoying this life, you know. (laughs) <laughs> Thank God I never analyzed it like that because, boy, would I have been, I could have talked myself right out of this deal. You know, but the deal was is that I loved it. Those old timers, and it reached a point where, you know, I'd try to watch down the street to see who was coming to get me. You know, and when I got my, when I got my permit to learn how to drive at 16 years old, there was one guy, whose name was Bill, and Bill used to let me drive to meetings. And he had one of those big Ford LTDs that was, like, you know, bigger than, than Noah's Ark, and he'd kind of float down the road. You know, and when you'd go to make a turn, you had to almost pass the turn and then turn it. And it would float down the road. You know, and, and you always kind of had to bark in, back into parking spaces because the back end was shorter than the front end. I'd drive to meetings, and, you know, one time we got pulled over by the police because I was floating a little bit, and, you know, and, and Bill, you know, Bill, he drank a long time. He'd been sober a long time, and, and you know, I don't think the cop was real sure if he was sober or not. But, you know, he was in the passenger seat, and I was driving. We were fine. And, uh, you know, I just explained to him, you know, that I was learning how to drive, and he said, well, you know, could you find a smaller vehicle to learn in? <laughs> And I said, well, you know, I, I used whatever they got,
1: <laughs> which
0: was the truth for my life. I used whatever you people had, whatever you, whatever you offered up to me, I used it. You know, and my feet got more sober than my mind and my mouth. And thank God it happened in that order. You know, that's the order it has to happen in. You know, I don't believe that I can I can think my way into into any kind of, you know, complete spiritual condition. I can't think my way into that. I just can't. I can't feel my way into it. I can't talk my way into it, but I can walk my way into it because I can follow your footsteps. You know, you people are incredibly spiritual creatures who are moving around on this earth. You really are. The fact that you overcome alcoholism every single day and you choose sobriety over drinking and you choose God over over everything else, whether you do it well and you do it through prayer on bended knee or whether you do it by showing up at a detox unit to hold a meeting or whether you go into a prison to give a guy a big book because he's getting out. No matter what it is you do, you people live in service to each other, which means that you are incredibly spiritual human beings. And who knew alcoholics could pull that off? Your feet are more sober most of the time than your mind's in your mouth, and that is why my body got sober in that order. I was told to suit up and show up, empty the ashtrays, make the coffee. You know, I was sober about six months, and I was you know, given the position of secretary at a group, which meant that I had the key and the responsibility for the coffee, and I had to take our $4 a week, which was our collection, to the bank, And I had to do, you know, the whole deal. And there were weeks that I swear to you standing here today that I stayed sober because I had the only key to the church and who would make the coffee if I wasn't there. And I stayed sober because that was that. You know, six months sober. There was no, you know, well, you got to wait a year to be a secretary. You know, it's like, well, you know, I was dealing with four bucks. Work with me. (laughs) And the fact that I wasn't old enough to have a driver's license meant that somebody had to pick me up and take me so you knew I'd be under care. (laughs) You know, there were watchful eyes going with me to the meeting. And so my feet got real sober real fast because I had to keep up with the people that were taking care of me. I went to amazing meetings, and I got to sit next to the giants of Alcoholics Anonymous who were alive at that time. And, um, (laughs) I mean, guys like Ed Andy, who had been around and sober forever, you know, forever. And he would just look at me and kind of shake his head and say, are you still doing this deal? I'd say, yes, sir. Sir, you know, who who was ever going to use that? I was an angry, frightened kid. I was never going to call anybody sir or ma'am or be respectful, but, you know, you guys made me. And, um, you know, and he'd say, you know, are you still doing this? I said, you know, yes, sir, I am. And, and he'd say, you yeah, know, thank God for you. And I said, well, you know, thank God for you. And he said, I have been doing a long time. It's kind of what I do. You know, and that was just the reality, man. This is what I do. And because you people did what you did and you allowed me to just, just follow you around like a puppy dog, because I wanted what you had and I didn't know what it was, it worked. And I didn't get sober in an area of the country that believed in a step a month. I didn't get sober in, a, in an area of the country that believed a step a year. I didn't get sober in an area of the country that thought that you could rest on your laurels and you know before you did the work. <laughs> no. No. You know, I had completed the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the work part of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, before I had eight months of sobriety. And thank God I did. All of that shame I told you that I was completely covered up in when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to complete a fourth and a fifth step so that I could shake some of that, so that I could stand to look in the mirror and brush my hair in the morning. I had to do that deal, and I had to do it now, okay? There wasn't time to get me spiritually fit, okay? There was time to teach me very quickly how to pray and who God might be, and then get me busy. That's it. You know, my feet were more sober than the rest of me, and you taught me how to go to meetings, how to pray, when to pray, what to say in my prayers, because it's all in the big book. There are very explicit directions in there. You taught me how to do all of that. And I was doing nothing more than going through the motions and practicing to the best of my ability on a daily basis, and you moved me into my fourth step. And in that fourth step, man, I was writing that stuff down, and I did not want to write that stuff down, you know, because I went through most of it with my eyes closed like this, and I I did not want to write that stuff down, and I wrote it down, and then I surely didn't want to say it out loud. I did not want to say it out loud, and I had to say it out loud to one of those women who was assigned to take care of me. And she listened to everything that I had to say, and she just looked at me and she said, Is that it? And I looked at her, and I, of course, had withheld.
1: <laughs>
0: and I said, Uh huh. And she said, mm, Still struggling with honesty, are we? And I said, Uh huh. And she said, Give me it. Give it up. And so I sat there very quiet for at least 15 minutes, and I'm not exaggerating. And I was squirming, and I just was not going to say that thing out loud because I hadn't written it down either. And I finally said it out loud. And she said, now you are a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and let me share with you what your character defects are. Okay? And she made me a list of my character defects, and I had 16 of them. (laughs) And she handed me that list and she said, now, do you remember why I made you do all that work on getting to know what the four absolutes are? Okay, and this is very important. It was very, very important in my life. Because before she would allow me to start doing my step work, I had to figure out what the four absolutes were. And the four absolutes come directly from the Oxford groups, my understanding. And the four absolutes are absolute love, honesty, purity, and unselfishness. And I saw that because, you know, where I got sober, we had them on the little placards like we have the hope is found here and all that stuff, you know, pretty much nationwide. They had the four absolutes. And, um, and she said, you know, you've got to figure out what four absolutes are. And so I went and I looked the four absolutes up in the dictionary. And, you know, love is to care for, you know. And so, you know, I looked up all the definitions and I took them back and I said, here you go. These are four absolutes. And she said, that's not good enough. You need to tell me what four absolutes are. Keep looking. And so what I did was I, I went to two meetings a day because there were some that I could get to walking. Yeah, of course it. You know I had to skip school to get there, but that's a whole other thing. And uh, you know so I was I was you know I was signing myself out early from school and going to noon meetings because you know some of you some of you who are who are up there in years, you know you forgot that new alcoholics go to meetings at night and you only go to noon meetings. So I had to go there to get your wisdom, and I knew that. Did you hear that? I want some of you people with some long-term spread to come back to night meetings. Um, but anyway, you all you all hung out at noon meetings, and um, and I and, and I wanted that wisdom, okay? And so I had to skip school to go there. Actually, I was fine with it, and uh, and I and I kept bringing up the topic of the four absolutes, okay? I kept bringing up the topic of four absolutes, and everybody would kind of talk around and about about the four absolutes, and I and I just wasn't getting it, you know. And finally, there was this old timer. His name was Mac, and Mac. Mac passed away when I was sober about a year and a half, and, and Mac was just, he was a pillar in the little town where, where I was getting sober in, in Worcester, Ohio. He was, he was a pillar in the AA community. You know, he was the one that would sit in the back, and every time they'd ask for anniversary, he'd get up and he'd say, I have 5,178 days.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: and I, the next day when he went to, I have 5,179 days, and he did that every <laughs> single day.
1: And I don't know how many how
0: he died, but it was, a lot. it was a lot. It was a big, big number. And, um, and so, you know, I, I went and I was like, Mac, you know, I am trying to figure out what four absolutes are. And I looked him up in the dictionary got that and bring it up at me. And, he was like, Nobody. and it's just not enough and I can't start my steps until I figure out what four absolutes are. And he said, okay, don't tell anybody I told you this, but here, here's the answer. <laughs> and I said, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. And he said, the four absolutes, they are the goals of recovery. He said, those are the things that you're going to put in place of your character defects when you get ready to give them up. Because if you don't have anything to put in place of your character defects, then how can you be comfortable with giving them up? I didn't. And I looked at that and I said, love, honesty, purity, and unselfishness. Absolute love, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness. Okay, I and I said, but Mac, I don't think I can ever do that. And he said, you're going to get damn close if you keep doing what you're doing. I said, okay, is that going to be good enough? He said, yep. And so, you know, I went back and I, and I said, you know, I got it. And I told him. Told him everything. You know, word verbatim what Mac had told me. And he said, you know, that damn Mac, we knew he'd tell you. Laughter But they were absolutely right, you know. I had to ha- I had to know what was going to come after I let go of all that stuff, you know, because I felt like all I had were defects of character. I felt like that's all I brought to the table was just this, bleh. and and I had to know, I had to know what was going to go in those empty spaces when I let that stuff go. And after I figured out that the four absolutes belong there, and then I got there's a four absolutes pamphlet that actually you can still get from the um, Cleveland intergroup office. Um, you know, once I I did some study on the four absolutes, and I kind of you know I got a little better handle on those concepts. And um, and I did some reading in the Oxford groups, and I got you know I got in touch with with where all that comes from because there is an amazing history that goes with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are amazing people that go with the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And once I got all of that, and then I got launched on this spiritual journey, and, I, and they were able to take me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was sitting you know, at the end of my fifth step, and I had this list of character defects. You know, and there's a time frame that goes with these steps, too. It's all in the big book. And, uh, and thank God, I, you know, I, I need a reference material. You know, I mean, I, I don't remember all this stuff. I, I needed to have a place to go to look this stuff up, and it's all right there. And so I'm sitting there with this list of character defects, and I thought, now what am I going to do with this? You know, I don't, I don't know what to do with them. I mean, I, you know, I love these things. They, you know, I, I, I survived my life and my choices because I used these things to help me survive. The places that I put myself and the people that were in my life and all of those people that used to... I survived the world that I had built with my alcoholism and that my father had built before me with his alcoholism by using these character defects. And I just didn't know... I was willing to get rid of them, but I didn't know how. That's where I had had come to at the end of my fifth step. I was willing to get rid of them. I knew what was going in their place, but I didn't know how to make the swap. Steps six and seven. Steps eight and nine. Create humility. And humility is what washes the, my insides and makes room for love, honesty, purity, and unselfishness, which are, the, which are the things I believe that God would have me have. You know, but without, without reaching a point where I I didn't even humility, what was that? I had no idea what humility was. I did not know what humility was. I didn't have it. That wasn't on my list of sixteen things. I can tell you that right now. That was not it. And so I you know, I, I took I took the, that list of sixteen character defects and I took them through steps six and seven and and, and at the end of praying and asking God to remove these defects of character, trusting now at this point that I had something to put in their place, I got up and all of a sudden I was able to walk much lighter than I had ever walked. And steps eight and nine did not scare me. I was ready at that moment to move forward, to make that list, to go back and look at that list again, And to put the character defects that I had used in in corrupting that relationship with that person that was on that list in step eight. And go to them in step nine and say things like, I am so ashamed of my behavior in my relationship with you. I was self-centered. I was manipulative. I was self-serving. I was covered up in fear, and it is my goal to never act like that with you again. Is there anything in particular that you would like to discuss with me? And then I would be quiet, and I would listen. And the majority of the people that I made amends to said, I've been waiting a long time to hear you say that. And I think bygones can be bygones. And then I would say, I don't have the right to, but I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I'm working very hard on forgiving myself and on becoming a better person. And they would say, the majority of them, yes, I forgive you. And every time that would happen, I would walk a little lighter than the time before. And it didn't happen with every amend I made. It didn't happen with every one. My father still has not, and I don't believe he has the ability, with his alcoholism, to accept my amends or to try to have a different kind of relationship with me. You know, I said him in person, I said him over the phone, and I wrote him a letter. And finally my sponsor was like, enough, enough. You have done everything that you can do to make amends to this man. You need to let him go, and you need to let him go through prayer. And I did that. And we struggled, and we fought, and we struggled, and we fought, and we never liked each other, you know? I mean, you know, my father in the grips of alcoholism is an ugly man. And um, I in the grips of alcoholism was an ugly little girl. And the two of us together under the grips of alcoholism, <laughs> wow, whew, that, was, that was explosive and nasty and I had to make amends for my part. It did not mean that, you know, that his part didn't happen. It meant that I needed to make amends for my part and I did everything I could to do that. And you know, but it's never quite sat very well with me that that he and I are not, you know, and I, you know, so I've worked on it at different points. And in January, I moved back to Beaufort, South Carolina. I had been living in Atlanta And and I moved back to Beaufort, South Carolina, and I felt like maybe I could try one more time to do something else. And my thought was this. My father now has cirrhosis of the liver. And I always say out loud, my father has early stage cirrhosis of the liver. And I was telling a friend of mine, whose sister is a good friend of mine in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's a physician. And I said, well, my father has early-stage cirrhosis of the liver. And he said, really, what does that look like? And I started describing that. And he said, "Dad, that's late-stage cirrhosis of the liver. And I got some tears in my eyes, and he hugged me, and he said, it might not be long. And I said, hmm, okay. My entire life has been about combating alcoholism my entire life has been about surviving this disease and then recovering from it. And I don't think that that's like to, likely to end. And so in January, I picked up a book at the bookstore, and it's called At Home in the Heart of Appalachia. I finally said out loud that I was a hillbilly one generation removed. <laughs> and I read this book, and, the, and, it, and it was just—it an amazingly well-written book by this, by this man who who struggled with um, with drink and with mental illness and some things, and he, his father came from that environment. And anyway, this book meant a lot to me, and, and as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think of my father over and over and over, and so I opened up the cover of the book. I wrote inside it, Pop, which is what I used to call him. Thought you might enjoy this. I heard that you're still reading a lot. I will always love you, your daughter Deb stuck in an envelope, sent it with absolutely zero expectations. And I, and I put my return address on the envelope that I sent it in. And I, and I thought for a long time, do you even put your return address on it? You know? And I thought, oh, I'm going to put my return address on it. you know. If the man is dying of cirrhosis of the liver, he may at some point want to reach me and, and, and try to find peace. Whether he's drinking or not, if he wants to do that, I want him to be able to find me. And so I sent that off, and, you know, three weeks later I got a note back. Ripped off on it, and we had not spoken since 1993. And so I got a little note back on a small piece of paper that he had torn off of something else, and and it just said, Deborah. Okay, nobody ever calls me Deborah. Only when I'm in trouble do I get the full name. (laughs) Deborah, thanks for the book, enjoyed it very much. we Will put it on the very small stack of things that I treasure your father. And I thought, huh, all
1: right.
0: The game is on. (laughs) Game on. You know, alcoholism may have, you know, may have done a lot of damage to my father's soul, but game on. You know, I am spiritually fit. I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I will do whatever it takes to be available to that man, should he want peace, even in the midst of his chaos. And so every month I send him something, and I've gotten two responses, in eight th- in, in eight things, which you know, that's a, that's four, not bad, you know. So, pop, game on, you know, you're mine. At some point, at some point. He will pass away. And he will pass away having not ever, possibly having not ever, touched Alcoholics Anonymous except through my experience. I want him to know that sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous do not disappear. And we don't give up. We don't. You know, I have, I have learned more in being of service to Alcoholics Anonymous And I have learned more from praying to a God that I now believe in very, very much than I could have learned living a life without alcoholism. You know, when I say that I'm a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, it is because I get things here and I have gotten things here and I have a more full life here than I could have ever gotten or received or experienced without you folks being in my life. And with that has come an incredibly huge responsibility. I got sober at 15 years old. That means I had to finish high school as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to go away to college as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to do all of those things and now I'm going to reframe it. I got to finish high school because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to go to college because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to repair the relationships with people who love me and people who were just not real sure about me because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to have a relationship with a God of my understanding because of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when it came time to elect people into positions in in this... Okay, okay, so I go to college. Let me tell this quick quick thing. I go to college, and being a blue-collar kid from the Midwest, I did not like people with money. Okay, I was just kind of brought up that way. You're going to be a Democrat, you're not going to like people with money. And, uh, you know, government programs are good. And, you know, that's all I'm going to say about politics, but that's it's kind of how I was brought up. Um, you know, because the man is supposed to take care of us. Anyway, so that's, you know, that's, so I go to college, and, um, and, I, and, and I got to go to the school that I wanted to go to. I only applied to one school. You know, I had to have a certain score on my entrance exams. I had to, you know, all this stuff, and everything just went perfectly. And I went to the one school that I applied to. I mean, I know kids who apply to 20 schools and get accepted to two. There was one school I was going to, and I don't know why, but that's I was supposed to be there. That's why. So I go to this school, and I I don't like people with money, but I go to a small private liberal arts, incredibly expensive school where, you know, 85% of the kids who go there, you know, daddies buy them a new car to get there. And they have, you know, outfits that match and all that kind of, stuff. so anyway. So I leave and I go to college and, I, and I'm three and a half years sober. And, um, and my grandfather, my, my, grand, my mother's father had just committed suicide due to alcoholism about eight weeks before I left to go to college. And so my, my alcoholic experience was very, very, very fresh and I know that people die from this disease and so the first thing that I do when I get to college is I find a home group that I can walk to because I don't have a car. And, and I go in and I, and, and, and I start to build a relationship with those people and then it comes time to rush for a sorority, okay? And I don't like people with money. Yeah, I got yeah, I got all kinds of biases. and It was just, you know, I look back on that and think how comical it was that I was so close-minded. But I was, and that was my truth. And I take it to the school, and I look around, and, and I go through Rush for a shorty because when I went to college, I thought, I, am, I have been saved from active alcoholism for a reason, and I am going to live life to its fullest. I'm going to have as many experiences as I can have as long as I'm able to take care of my recovery at the same time. And so I rush and I join, I pick out the largest sorority on campus with the wealthiest girls, because I knew that I needed to challenge my beliefs. I knew that because I I knew all of you people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and some of you have money, and you are you know, and you are just as spiritually fit or as spiritually inept as I am, depending on what you do on a daily basis. And so I knew that I, I had to get over myself, is what, it, is what it boiled down to. I had to get over myself. And so I rushed and I joined the sorority. And I was able to walk through all of those stereotypes and all of those things. And, and, I, had, and I challenged all of those different levels of my own beliefs. And, um, you know, and I was able to learn a lot about how the other half lived. And I was able to see that money isn't, it's not about money. It's not about money. It's not about where we were born. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about the fact that we are all human beings. We walk on this earth together and we all breathe the same air. And so when it came time for us to get elected to positions my second year in college, I got elected to the position of chaplain in that sorority because I was the only one that talked about God out loud. I said, well, all right, and uh, and you know, and so girls would come to me because they, you know, they had gotten pregnant at a fraternity party because they had had a little too much to drink, and they, you know, now they had to look at whether or not to get an abortion or not get an abortion, and they came to me because their their parents were alcoholic and they weren't real sure what to do. They felt like they needed to be home to support their mom because their dad was. I mean, big things were happening in the world of these people regardless of how much money their families had. Big things were happening in the worlds of these people that had happened in my world, too. So once again, I was able, you know, never close the door on your past because, you know, it could be a very valuable experience, and I was able to do all of that for these girls. I mean, just amazing stuff, you know? And I was able to graduate with co- from college, and, you know, I, I no longer care how much money you make. I can, work, I can walk lightly into any room, into any circumstance and be okay because you people patted me on the back and told me I was going to be okay. That's all it took. You're going to be okay. And you know what I am. And I'm okay because you people love me. And you people let me follow you around and model your behavior and get my feet sober first, so that my heart and my head could follow. It's an incredible responsibility to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're sitting out there today and you have double-digit sobriety and you don't go to meetings, please, please come back to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're not sponsoring people, please help those of us who are. (laughs) I only have so much time. You know, and if you only go to meetings in the morning, you know, when, when the real sick alcoholics are still oversleeping, please, add an evening meeting. Okay? We need you in the trenches. I need help. And I need to hear what you have to say. Because God works through those of us who clean our houses. You know? So get out the broom and come back to meetings. We need you. Sorry about that. I've just been chattering up a storm. You guys have a great day.